Welcome to this episode of Ability. I'm your host, Jacob Holt. In this episode, I talk to Andrew Gerza, who has cerebral palsy and happens to live in Canada. I'm on a roll lately, I know. It's a really, really fun episode. It's some of the most fun I've had podcasting yet. It's We have a blast over this 30 minutes or so we got to talk, and I hope you really get to enjoy it. And it's I, I have no words for this. It's, it's completely stupendous. Enjoy it. Let's jump right in. So hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. It's nice to be on the other side of the podcast and not having to host today, so it's great. The last episode, I actually had somebody else host, so I know the feeling. It's really nice to just kind of let somebody else run it for you, which is awesome. Yeah, I know. Uh, so tell me about yourself. Tell me about your disability as if I know nothing. All right. So my name is Andrew Gerza. I'm 32. I live with spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy, which means in my case that I've had brain damage since birth and it affects my ability to walk and it affects mostly my my right side. Um, my whole body, but it mostly affects my right side. I'm a full-time power chair user. Um, uh, that's pretty much the, I mean, the extent of my disability is if you know nothing. That's kind of all you need to know is that I can't walk and I'm a wheelchair user. Power chairs are the way to go. It's just useful for me. I mean, I, I admire people who use um, manual chairs because that, that's a skill that my body does not want to give me. But no, I love my power chair. It's great. Power chairs allow for a lot of freedom that a lot of people can't get otherwise. Yeah, power chairs are, you know, they're, they're such an important part of what we need in our day. It's like another part of you. So when did you first realize you were different? <laughs> uh, which level of different are we talking about? The, the queer part or the disability part? Which part? I love that you went there. That's great. I'm going to go with the disability part. We'll get to the other part later. <laughs> awesome. Um, the disability, I mean, it's weird. You kind of always know you're different. You just always, as a disabled person, I think, we, and we don't talk about this too much in, in like the disability discourse. I think when you're born with a disability, unlike somebody who acquires their disability later in life, you always kind of know you're different when you're born with a disability. At least that's how I felt. That's how I've that you know like I, I've met people who say like at this age it was the first time I realized I was different, and then I've met people that are similar to me where I like I've always known there there was never a moment you know like you know my parents walked around the house and I couldn't do that so that's yeah. kind of obvious. It's something you just pick up on from like it's almost innate. It's almost like in your it's in your it's in your blood to know that you have a disability. I think when you're born with a congenital disability like like. I was, you just, it's part of who you are. It's literally part of the fabric of who you are. So there's never a moment where you don't understand that you can't do certain things and that your body is, your body makeup's a little bit different. There's never a moment that that doesn't cross your mind. So what was it like for you growing up? Growing up was, I mean, it was normal in the sense that my family, my family never this is going to sound so cliche and so like disability, like today newscast, but my family didn't, <laughs> my family didn't ever exclude me from things. They tried to really encourage me to just live my life and to be part. I was always part of the, the family. They actually built a house for me when I was, when we were five years old, when I was five, 
my family moved to a little place just north of me. I'm in Canada, just and we lived north of Toronto, way, way north of Toronto. Um, and so they built a house for me so that I could be a bungalow house for me so I could be on the same floor as my family. So they've always made, my family always made sure that I was a part of everything and that I was, you know, I was protected and I was safe. My disability didn't matter and it was okay and all those things. But then I think, and I mentioned this on my podcast too, when you go out there in the world and you're not protected by your family anymore, growing up as a disabled kid can be, that's where you start to, that's where you start to understand prejudice and you start to understand how people really misunderstand disability when you, when you're not protected by the safety of your family anymore. Um, but I, I was always kind of a shy, awkward kid, and that kind of hasn't changed, even as I'm an adult now. I'm, I'm shy and awkward and kind of, you know, I'm sarcastic and sardonic and funny, and that was me as a kid. That's kind of how I was. Um, and then as I grew into, like, my teenage years, that kind of stuck around. And then, but, I mean, growing up for me was never really, uh, there's so many moments of growing up that I could share with you. But my disability, I guess what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way, was my disability was always a part of it. And there were moments where my disability was celebrated, like with my family. And there were moments where it was like an awkward thing that I had to contend with and when I was kind of out in the world. What was grade school like for you? School, I loved and both hated school because the kids didn't know how to react to me. And I didn't know how to react to the, to the kids because I was shy and awkward, right? So... We, were, we would play this weird, like, head game with each other. Where it was like, which one of us is going to talk first? And which one of us is going to be friendly? And so I had I had a few friends. And, like, when I had my birthday parties in grade school and stuff, like, my f- my friends would come. My mom would invite the whole school and they, my class, and they would come. And that was nice. But I think, again, when you go out there in the world and you start seeing kids on your own without the safety of, like, family and stuff... Um, it can be awkward. Uh, in school, I loved. I love school. I love learning. I love being connect. I loved history. I loved, um, and I loved always getting the answer right. Because as a kid in school, I felt in part because I was disabled. I felt that if I ever got an answer wrong, I was must automatically be stupid because I'm a disabled kid. So I was very. It was very important to me to be really not not super smart academically because I was like an average B student, but I felt it was really important to study and be, you know, be involved because I wanted the teacher to see that this disabled kid who has the personal aid sitting beside him isn't stupid. He gets it. He knows what's going on. I'm right there with you. I love history, by the way. (laughs) It was my favorite subject as as a teenager. I was all about like the Renaissance and all about like, I really kind of wish that I lived back in like the 1700s. I don't know. It just seemed really cool to me when I was a kid. Couldn't have a power chair, though. Right. Well, I mean, I could have, I could have people carry me around. It's okay. We, I would have figured it out. <laughs> Did you have, like, a really good history teacher? Because I think that's the difference for people who say they love history and don't, you know, and hate it, is the teacher. Looking back on my history teacher, he was a giant dork. And if I met him today, we would totally be friends. But at the time, I was like, you're a dork. <laughs> I don't like you. He was a nice guy. But I just remember thinking what a dork he was. At the time, because I was like, you know, you're you're in like great. What was this, like grade ten history was my history teacher, and I was like, you know, fourteen, fifteen, and I was like, you're a dork. But of course, now if we hung out, I'd be like, you're totally cool. We should hang out. 
but um, he he really encouraged me to do really well. And I remember when I got my first like big history essay back from him, I was so happy. Like whenever I got a good grade in school, I was like, I always somehow attributed it back to my disability and thought, you know, okay, good. I did really well on this. I got an A, so I must, I must be really, I am smart. I am, I'm, I'm doing it. Like it was, these were really big accomplishments for me because when I was younger, learning, you know, when I was, when I was like four, between two and five, they were pretty much telling my mom, like your son's never going to be in a regular classroom. Um, and I heard the podcast you did about, I was just listening to it before we hit record. I heard about when you were talking about how your school wanted to put you in, in special education. They were pushing for that for me too all the time. And my mom was like, no, this kid's brilliant. Let him, don't put him there. He doesn't need to be in that classroom. Let him try. So Whenever I got a good mark in school, I was always like, see, see, I'm good. I did it. Just like everybody else, I'm smart. So it was really important to me to be to be academically inclined. Yeah, schools get a little overzealous sometimes to box you in with the other, uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for there, but they want to box you in with the other students that aren't doing so well just automatically. And you have to like dig yourself out of that hole. Yeah, it's not even. I don't even think that's that they want to box you in. They just see disability and they go, "Well, okay, we're going to put you with the other people that we know are disabled and identified like that." And so, like, it's easier for them to just categorize you that way. And it, I remember, I don't, I can't remember how many fights my my family had with the school board saying, "No, this kid, this kid is smart. Let him try. He'll be all right." And so that's why it was so important to me to do well in school because every time I didn't do well. I immediately attributed it back to, well, I'm just the dumb disabled kid who can't do this. Um, so it was really important to me to, and I wasn't even like, I didn't even get A's all the time, but for me, like to get an A or to get a B and to be like kind of not cream of the crop, but like right up there or try to be right up there was really important to me. Now, now so much. And when I, when I got into college, it wasn't, that wasn't a big deal for me. I didn't care so much because I wanted friends and I wanted to, you know, do the weed and I wanted to do all the things my friends were doing. Um, and I wanted to get drunk and be stupid. But, you know, when I was, and in, even in my first year of university, it was really important for me to impress the professors. By second year, I had more friends and I was going out and doing more stuff. So I didn't care as much. But to be seen as the smart one has always been something that was really important to me. That's awesome that you had lots of friends and you were able to go out and be a part of that community in the way. That's really great. The, the party animal? Yeah. Embrace it. Be the party animal. I did it. I'm an old man now. I'm thirty. I'm thirty two, and I now I'm just like, oh, let's just Netflix and chill. I don't want to go. Why do I have to go anywhere? Let's just come over and we'll hang out. See, I'm the old man in my friend group. Like, I'm the one that's you know whining about taxes and you know how you shouldn't have that big wedding. You should just get eloped. And <laughs> well, and is that partly because like I think that's also related back to disability and then like we don't have the income to think about a big wedding. We don't have the income to think about blowing it all on booze every weekend. Those are not luxuries that, at least in my case, that money can buy me. Like I have, I'm on a very restricted budget given the fact that I'm on, I'm on the Canadian version of SSI. So um, I don't have a lot of money that I can spend. So my idea of hanging out is like, hey, let me get all my friends together. Come over to my house. We'll throw on some Netflix. We'll throw on some like dumb TV show and hang out together. That's more fun for me and or having a house party than like going to a bar where you can't hear anything. It's totally inaccessible. I mean, I did that in my 20s. It was fun when I was like 21 and drunk and I wanted to like, woo, yeah, but that now it's like, no, I just want to hang out. Let's just hang out and do something like relaxed, low key. 
That's awesome. Uh, you mentioned when you're talking about school and how your parents fought for you to keep you out of some of those uh, special education classes. What is your relationship like with your parents? My relationship with my, well, that's, it's complicated. My relationship with my mom and my stepfather are great. My mom is really, my mom and I are, we're two peas from the same pod. Um, we're just really close. We have a really, we're really, it's always been her and I against the world. She's always fought for me, but she also always has let me fall on my face. And I think when you're a disabled kid, it's important for your parents to let you go and try and 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 mess up. I think that's really important that um your parents let you do that. My mom was never one to hold me back, and she never let me not try. But if I need her, she's always there. And then with my stepdad, who's been around since I was one... Um, and the, the interesting thing about my stepdad and why I love him so much is because he came into, he married my mom when, when I was one. And he, you know, he met her at a time when he didn't know much about disabilities. He'd never experienced disability before. He met this woman that he fell in love with. And she's, she already had two kids, one with disabilities. And he was like, all right, I'm going to make this work. And it was, I just think it's really kind of inspiring that somebody who had never had any experience with disability, never met another disabled person in his life, met this kid and said, I'm going to take this on and I'm going to raise this kid like my son, even with all this stuff, he's going to be my kid. And so I, I admire him for that so much because, you know, most people who encounter somebody with a disability could say, oh no, I can't deal with this, like this is too much. And he's like, no, no, we'll figure it out. So we have a really we have a really good relationship. It's we're really close that way. Um, my relationship with my biological father is different. He's never been around. He's never been able to handle my disability, um, and that caused me a lot of pain as a kid because my sister um, is able-bodied, and so he would my dad my biological father would come to our house, pick her up, take her out to go do stuff and say, oh, Andrew, what we want to do is not accessible for you. Sorry about that. And I would be crushed. So we don't talk much anymore. We don't talk much at all, actually, anymore. But I don't wish him any ill will. I hope his life's going well for him. But we just don't, because of my difference and that I have a disability, we just don't see eye to eye. I know that feeling of, uh, hey, like all you guys want to go do something? Oh, wait, Jacob, you can't do that. <laughs> So, you know, let's all go. Bye. Yeah, it, and that's a weird feeling like when your friends are like, oh, we're going to go to this club. Oh, Andrew, you can't. Sorry, well, we'll tell you all about it later. Bye. And you're just like, oh, well, what if we didn't? do like, That's why the idea of going to a bar for me is not exciting because I have to think about all of the steps for me to get to the bar and all of the steps that I have to take after I come back from the bar when I'm like, well, why don't I just make my house the bar? Like, I can go buy booze. I can go get music. I can, like... And I understand, like, the atmosphere of going out is different, but, like, for me, it's all about, let's just make the memories of my house, let's hang out. That's when you stock up your own house bar and you just go for it. Yeah, exactly. What brings you joy? Oh, my God, so many things. I like to, I have a dirty mind, so laughing about inappropriate things with people makes me laugh a lot. I, I like... Um, I just I, I'm I'm very similar to you. I like hearing people's stories. I like being vulnerable. I like I just I I have a really fun sense of humor. It just takes people a while to to get to know that because people are so I think they don't expect somebody with a disability to be 
to enjoy their life as a disabled person. So um, it brings me joy to bring people into that experience and have them go, I never realized that you were this way or I never realized that it was okay to make fun of your disability with you or I never realized that that your disability could be could be a source of happiness for you. So I like giving people that experience. Um, really, the biggest thing that gives me joy is, is laughing and have my family. And, and again, all these, all these things sound super cliche, but it's true. And my disability brings me joy. My disability has allowed me to create, much like with what you're doing with your podcast, I've created a brand for myself. I've created work for myself. I, where I'm self-employed as a disability awareness consultant um, with the brand that I created because of my disability. So really, my disability brings me a lot of joy. I believe you're the first person I've ever met with a disability who was gay. Is that as uncommon as I think it is? It's not actually uncommon. It's something. It, actually, if you look at the queer disabled community, there's quite a lot of us. Why it seems uncommon, Jacob, is that we don't get enough exposure in, in our popular queer media, in queer pornography, in queer nightlife we don't we don't see the sexy guy with a disability with his out ready to get ready for sex you don't see that so i think why it seems so unfamiliar to a lot of people with disabilities and without is because we don't see it enough and i think we need to i think it needs to be immersed within our queer culture more and then you'll you'll start to it'll start to feel less uncommon i think i'm probably one of the first because i'm so vocal about it too like i'm very proud of my queer identity, my queer cripple identity. Well, it's also one of those things, too, where, you know, some people stay hidden with that part of their lives and don't vocalize it as well, like you mentioned. Like, out of the Fortune 500 CEOs, only one of them is out as gay. Odds are more of them are likely to not be at least, you know, uh, cisgendered. So yeah. the idea that, you know, that they're probably just not ready to talk about it or, you know, worried about. Anyway. Right, right. I mean, I think there are a lot of queer people with disabilities who live in the closet because they're concerned about care. They're concerned about telling their attendants that they're queer. All these things, when you have a disability and you encounter queerness, come into your head as something you worry about. And that's when I was coming out. That's what I worried about a lot. And so for me, the process of coming out as queer and disabled and as a queer cripple um, is never ending. It happened. I have to con- continually do it. It's not like when you come out, it's you just come out and then there you are. It's a continuous process that changes every time. What adaptations have you made to the world around you? Well, if we're talking about physical adaptations, I, um, I don't, ha- I haven't made a lot of physical adaptations. The apartment that I live in is quote accessible, but if you were to, come in the here here as a wheelchair user you'd be like i can't do anything in there but because i have attendant care available to me whenever i need them i can get i can call them up and say hey i want you to get this for me thanks um so i have things like hooks on my walls or things are a little bit lower but not not too many major physical adaptations when i was growing up the house i was living in like i said was a bungalow um so my family adapted that for me when I was younger. And I've had things adapted for me at school, too, as I needed to. But in my in my life right now, nothing's been majorly adapted. Just things a little bit lower and things close enough for me to reach them, and I should be okay. I know we talked about school already, but, I, you, know, but you brought it back up there. What adaptations did you have to have made in school? 
Well, the biggest adaptation that I had in school was that I had a personal care attendant with me all the time. So he was an educational assistant and he was there to assist me not only with my personal care needs, but also with my homework and stuff like that. And he, yeah, he and I actually became really good friends. Um, that was really the major adaptation that I had in school. Uh, and that made it hard for me to, as much as I liked him and we were great, we, we got along well together. And as much as I liked my aides, um, it was also hard for me to make friends with the other kids because they saw this adult that I was with all the time, which denoted my difference. Um, so I was had to adapt to like, you know, adapt to ha- not having him there. But then if I didn't have my attendant there, or my caregiver there, then I would be without and having to ask my friends. So it was a lot of adaptation and realizing that I was, like you said earlier, realizing you were different. I think those are the moments when I realized how different I was. Um, when I was out in the world with other people and realizing that I couldn't do this without help and realizing that asking for that help was a big deal for me. If you could have any job, if education, cost, physical ability weren't a factor, just pure enjoyment, what would you most like to do? To be honest, the job I'm doing right now is a disability awareness consultant and as a crippled content creator, which is a term that I just created for the work that I do, creating podcasts and stuff like that. Um, this this is the job that I would, would do. This is what I would do right here. I would do it. I would do it with a lot of influx more money, so that I wouldn't have to do it, do it like fully by myself. I would, you know, I'd want a lot of funding to make this go. But I also would want to do a job like this, this job. But I'd also want to be able to to mentor someone else to do this work, to show them that as a disabled person, you don't have to work for the man. You can create your own positions and your own work for yourself and that's why I'm so proud of what I do not because I want to toot my own horn necessarily although I am a fame horse I have no problem doing that but I also um I enjoy being able to say yeah my job I created it because most people think the work that I do is a hobby and it's something that I do for fun it's not fun all the time I mean it is fun but it's not a fun thing that I'm doing for fun it's work that I'm creating for myself but I wouldn't have it any other way Tell me about the gig that is uh, a disability awareness consultant. What is that like? What does that entail? That's a loaded question because when most people think about disability consultant, what they think about is somebody who's going to sit for an hour and talk to you about accessibility, physical accessibility, and talk to you, tell you how not to discriminate against somebody with a disability. That's what we think. And we've come to learn that a disability advocate and disability consultant does. That's their job. My job as a disability awareness consultant is to bring the emotional experience of disability with you. So that means telling you what my day-to-day was, explaining to you how frustrated I am with particular aspects of my care, or how I can't get laid, or how I can't do this, or how this is frustrating, or how exciting it is to be able to share my story, to share the lived experience and all of its, you know, all of the facets of that, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that's what my job is. And bringing that emotional experience to somebody and to an audience, whether it be through a podcast, a blog, or a presentation, that's what I do. And that's kind of what the gig is. How do you think people see you? Well, I would hope they see me without my clothes on at some point. Um, <laughs> as I flirt with the audience. Hi, Ability Audience. I hope you like that. Um, so... <laughs> But how do I think people see me? I hope they see me as a somebody who 
I hope they see that awkward, shy person um, that I am, because I really am. I, I'm a huge dork. I hope they see that part of me. I hope they see the the awkward, funny side of me. I hope they see the side of me that is a trailblazer. I hope that they see my wheelchair. This is a big one. I hope that they see when people when people talk to me about my disability all the time. They go, oh, "I don't notice your chair," and I go, "Why not?" You should notice my chair. I notice it. It's a part of who I am. So I want them to see my chair and I want them to have that experience and that discomfort of recognizing that as part of who I am. Um, I hope that they see that I'm a, that I am somebody just trying to do this work and that I'm a trailblazer and that I'm funny and that I'm, that I, um, that I like to, to, I hope they see that I embrace my disability for all that it is. Um, and I hope they see me for all my flaws, too. I hope they see that I'm messed up and that I make mistakes and that I'm not, a, you know, I hope they don't see me as this cherubic, innocent, disabled guy who could do no, no wrong. I hope they see me as a full, fleshed out person with disabilities who's, who's stumbled a couple times in his life. I know the thing of people saying that they don't see your chair. And my first thought is, really? I don't believe you. <laughs> right that, that's how i feel too it's like really how can you not see it because i see it i wish i could not see it sometimes you know, like i actually you know sometimes i'll get out of my chair and watch tv and i purposefully put my wheelchair in a spot where i can't see it while i'm watching tv just to have that moment of like i can enjoy it Anyway, it's a weird tick, maybe. Maybe it's just a weird flaw in the way I am. But I, you, you know, I kind of just want a moment to myself. <laughs> yeah, I, I fully understand that. Are you a, are you a full-time wheelchair user? Is that like your everyday? No, I'm a full-time wheelchair user, but I have pretty good mobility. Like, I'm able to get around. I'm, I'm, I'm terrific. Uh, I'm tremendously uh, lucky in my quality of life and the way I can get around. So, like, I'll park my wheelchair on one end of the couch and then sit on the other end of the couch. <laughs> so See, that like, way I'm far away from it. For me, if I was to do that and you took the wheelchair away, I would watch the person wheel the wheelchair away and be like, don't go too far with that. That's like my, that's my legs. Like, it's, it's a really, when you're a full-time wheelchair user with limited mobility, that is your everything. So when someone takes that away from me, even, even if I want them to, like, even if I ask them to move the chair... It's a moment of like, what do you mean? Why are you going to take that away? What for? Oh, yeah. And I completely get that. And I do use the wheelchair full time. I can't walk. You know, like I can stand a little bit, but walking not so much. And yeah, if if someone was to then move the chair, it would then freak me out. Yeah. But, you know, I live alone. Nobody's going to touch it. So that, you know, so that's, I don't know. It's a weird tick. I don't think it's probably the most normal thing. But it makes me happy, and I don't care. <laughs> but then again, what is normal, right? So, yeah. There's no such thing as normal, especially in these times that we live in. Of course. Who inspires you? Well, you know, when I was growing up as a disabled kid, I didn't have a lot of role models. Um, and I could say the cliche thing like, oh, my family inspires me totally, which is true. They do. But I'm inspired by disability activists and disability people doing this work. So people like you who've decided to take a plunge and do a podcast about disability and, and ask people to share their stories. I think that's that's inspirational. Um, and I hate the term inspirational because it makes me think of many like ableist disability things and my disability trigger, like my disability social justice thing is going off right now. But I am inspired and I hope that people are inspired by me too. Um, 
doing the work that I do, not because I'm not because, not because I'm just breathing today as a disabled person, but because they're inspired by what it is that I'm doing with my with my work. Um, I'm inspired by the next generation of disabled people who are coming up behind me and what the legacy that hopefully I and others like me will leave for them. I'm inspired by people like Carrie Wade, who's a disability activist out of California um, and a blogger and a writer. I'm inspired by people like Emily Ledow, who does work in New York and runs a disability podcast. I'm inspired by people like Alice Wong, who does the Disability Visibility Project and is really, really prominent in putting disability into media. I'm inspired by individuals who are who are willing to put this work out and say our voices are important and here's our stories. What is the biggest challenge you've had to overcome? The biggest challenge that I've had to overcome personally is finding a space to be myself and finding a space to love myself. Because as a queer disabled person, I'm being sent so many messages that tell me that I can't love myself and that I shouldn't love myself and that I'm not attractive enough and that I'm not good enough and that I'm too disabled and I'm too this and I, I need to be independent and I need all these things. And so I've, I've been sent a lot of really tough messages as a child uh, and as an adolescent as a, and as a grown up even. So Finding a space to love myself has been the biggest challenge for me um, and loving who I am. And by being able to label myself with language that I chose, like a queer cripple, being able to use that language for myself has given me a space to be myself and to find a way into loving who I am. Loving the giant disabled dork that I am, because I'm a, like I said, I'm a giant dork, huge dork. Embrace the dork. Right, Exactly. Also, I feel like, you know, the more educated you get and the older you get, everybody's kind of dork. Everybody's got their own thing. Exactly. And I think the more educated that we get within the nuances of disability and taking it away from the very damaging tropes of, like, you have to be independent, you have to be a hero, or you have to be a pitiful, sad, crippled kid. Um, When you start looking at the reality of disability, I think that we all can find spaces and there are so many disabled dorks out there that I love so much. And so I think, you know, I love that I, that I'm able to embrace that side of myself. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say at the pearly gates? That's a pretty big if, if heaven exists, I want God to say to me, Hey man, we've been waiting for you. Come on in and then go th- like wheel through the pearly gates. And I do say wheel because I don't, I'm not one of those people that believes the minute I go to wherever I'm going, I'm probably going to hell because I'm, I'm a little bit dirty. I'm probably going to go below. It's fine. <laughs> I'm okay with that. And it's warmer. It's probably warmer in hell. And I like warm. But if <laughs> I'm not one of those people who, uh, is like, oh, when I, when you go to heaven, you're not going to have the constraints of your chair. No, no, no. I'll be in my chair rocking out to some, you know, 80s and 90s tunes because when I go through those gates, I would hope that it's a big 80s and 90s tunes party. Um, and I hope God just says, uh, hey, come on in. We've been waiting for you and we've been watching you. And like, here you are. And, and we're so happy to have you here. I love to hear you say that, um, you know, that, that you still want to be in your chair. Because that always upsets me. Like, and you'll and you'll go to heaven one day, and you'll be walking, and God will cure you. And I think walking is for poor people. So, you know, so walking is for peasants. You know, I don't want to walk. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, I am the next stage of evolution where we exactly. won't walk. Let, gonna, I, am the, I am the first original bionic man, bitch. Don't take this away from me. We're all going to be like Bali and you just don't know it yet. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm a Borg. Don't take that shit away. No, no, no. I'm a Borg. <laughs> well, I don't know if I want to be a Borg because then you're assimilated. Unless you're the cutest, I guess. Unless you're Patrick Stewart. But you know. I, I would be Stewart. I, I like Stewart. I'm watching TNG right now because it's my like nerd gem. Uh, I just found it again. Well, I love I'm, TNG. It's, it's so my good. favorite one because it's so campy, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, I love. You know, like I love Riker. He's probably my favorite character just because he's just. Because he gets, because he, he, so he beds everybody. He's the, the sexiest, even as a dork. Well, especially you know once he starts growing the beard in season two, and like how he puts his leg up on stuff. Anyway, his weird like quasi sexual thing that it's not supposed to be, but it totally is. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, you know, kind of like you know who's in charge here. You know, like leg prop. Yeah, you know, like weird. Like here's my crotch, yo. <laughs> I love Riker. He's you know, and he's he, I don't know. He's he's so ridiculous and sexual, and you know, he's, he's weird. so good, so so good. Yeah. You know, he's the kind of guy that would like go on the holodeck and just have like the most ridiculous orgy that like you would oh, ever imagine. Totally, he would be the guy that's like, "Hey, I'm gonna get two alien girls with a lot of cleavage." And make them do crazy things to me. And then and then two minutes later, I'll be on the bridge, like, saving the world. That's Riker. Yes. And for those listening, you realize how much of a giant dorks we both are. Uh, thanks for letting us have that interlude with you, listeners. Well, thanks so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. I don't think I have any more questions unless you just want to talk about Star Trek. Like, I'm all into Star Trek. We can talk about Star Trek till you know, I pass out dead, but... Uh... It was such a pleasure. If anybody wants, if anyone who's listening wants to reach me um, and wants to find out more about what I do, they can head over to www.andrewgerza.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-R-Z-A.com. Um, follow me on Twitter at the same handle, Andrew Gerza. Uh, they can come out. If, you want, if anybody's listening with disabilities and wants to come on my podcast, uh, Disability After Dark on iTunes is the sexy one, and Disability with Drew is the culture and disability one. So, um, and Jacob, I totally want to have you on one of those because we'd have awesome conversations. I'm down. I think you really missed an opportunity. You should have your, like Disability After Dark and like Disability Get the Day. <laughs> like you could have had you no know, no black Actually, and white. No, I wish I talked to you earlier about branding because that would have been a great idea. Yeah, you're like. <laughs> You have like a day podcast and then a night podcast where it gets sexy. Disability in the day. That's a great idea. Um, yeah. Jacob, it was so fun. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It was such, so great to be a guest. Yeah. Thanks so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Let's we'll do right. it again soon. I would love that so much. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks so Bye. much. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. It was a lot of fun to make. Andrew already gave you his information, so it's just left to me to give you mine. You can follow the show on Twitter at Ability Podcast. You can follow myself on Twitter at the Jacob Holt. And you can see the show on Facebook at Ability Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes if you get a chance. It was an absolute pleasure to make. And until next time, keep on rolling.